0: My name is Ruby Hines. Our scripture reading for today is found in Mark chapter 7 verses 24 through 30. Let us stand for the reading of God's word. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyra. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it. Yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First, let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Lord, she replied, Even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed, and the demon was gone. This is the word of God.
1: I'm just so glad to be home. That's what I want you to know. Um, on Monday, there in Chicago, where I was, my daughter-in-law, Kelsey, uh, drove me to O'Hare Airport. And on that day, as, as the uh, plane was taxiing out at O'Hare, the snow started coming down it was like God was saying to me, my child, it's time for you to go home. (laughs) And Chris picked me up. It was about 80 degrees and sunny. I am so glad to be home. And I am glad to be with you. Uh, We're we're here this Sunday after Thanksgiving. I am a thankful man. I hope you see it. I'm just overjoyed to be here. Thank you for your faithfulness during these past three months. Uh, your prayers and your notes and your faithfulness to serve and to give here at church, it, it's great. I'm so thankful for some of the people you never see here at church who serve so well, our administrative, operational, and financial staff. They have worked unbelievably well together collaboratively under Jeff Jones, our administrator's leadership. I'm so grateful for them. And um, I am really grateful for this remarkable uh, pastoral ministry team that I get to be a part of and that you were able to experience over these three months. They have served so well, haven't they? I, I woke up one day um, and I thought, these young pastors that I call young pastors aren't all that young anymore. They, they are seasoned, educated, gifted, godly leaders and just needed a chance to fly. And, they, and, they, and fly, they are. And uh, so for the preparation for the statement of faith series shared faith series for all of the work and ministry that has gone on for the tremendous preaching that has come and i think especially for the tremendous leadership of my friend uh... partner our lead ministry pastor jeff Mattisich. i am grateful i am so thankful so, and i get back for advent sunday church looks so beautiful uh, this year, Chris and I are doing something, and I wish i 'd known it earlier, and I would have told, sent this on but uh, every day over the next twenty five days, uh, I found a devotional that, that we 're going to be reading it 's called christmas joy it 's written by a good friend of mine he 's a tremendous handler of the Bible, a godly man, and, and he writes so well it 's only a page or two a, a day. Uh, with a a passage of scripture a thought about that passage and a prayer to guide us either at the beginning or end of the day or at a mealtime i recommend it to you it's called christmas joy those of you who know how to get such things electronically you could get them immediately and start tomorrow others might have to order that and even if you start a day or two late jump in it isn't that hard to catch up and again I, i hope that you will join us in that and here in our worship services Uh, you've seen that the theme is, uh, God and sinners reconciled. Uh, Do you know that comes out of the wonderful Christmas carol, uh, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, uh, God and sinners uh, reconciled. And actually over the last uh, three months, uh, I've been doing a lot of things, but one of the main things I've been thinking and praying about is this matter of reconciliation. Isn't it amazing in in the light of what's happening in our country with so many divisions that are are emerging, that have been there, that have been coming out from Ferguson, Missouri, all through our country, that we have come uh, to think for the next several weeks about our God being a God of reconciliation and a church like ours being planted in a neighborhood to be his ambassadors of reconciliation. I think it's amazing, but but here we are, and so, so we're going to start I have thought more and more about this and and become more convinced that our God loves to take those broken things, broken because of sin in his creation, and bring them back together, heal them. At least this, our God is on a mission in this world to take all of those things that have become hostile toward one another and even toward him and make peace. Those two notions of taking what is broken and healing it, bringing it back together, of taking what is hostile and making peace—that's what I think of when I think about reconciliation. And I've I've become convinced that almost every ministry that we have here at Lake Avenue Church really centers around being engaged in that reconciling work of God. Think about it with me. We talk about evangelism, telling people about Jesus, but at its heart. Isn't that all about calling people to be made right with God? Being reconciled to God through faith in Jesus. We talk about discipleship ministries. And if you're new to church, you don't know what that is. But really it is all that brokenness inside of ourselves. We come to Jesus, we're forgiven, and a process starts where our lives are brought together. Until they're what they're supposed to be in Christ. That's reconciliation ministry. And our, our involvement in our neighborhood... Where we look out and see all the brokenness in the neighborhood in the world that God has put us in, when we step in in the name of Jesus uh, and bring the hope, the love, the justice, the compassion of Jesus, then that's reconciliation ministries. And I'm, I'm just telling you something you already know uh, reconciling relationships when they're broken, that's hard. Do you have any broken relationships, family members, marriages? You know how hard it is, but let me get, tell you God's promise. Colossians 1.20. When God's done with this mission, all this broken, broken things, He promises they all things are going to be reconciled to Him in Christ through His blood shed on the cross. Amen. All will be right. That's our promise. And so, if that's true, here's what I think. That any steps you and I take in the direction of reconciling brokenness when we do, we can feel the wind of God's Spirit blowing behind us. We're not going to be doing it on our own. And yet, as convinced I, as I am of that, we know there's a lot of reconciling work to be done. Can I have a witness? Yeah. It's amazing that in talking about this summit of the brokenness in our own nation that has long been there, has just come to the fore uh... so how do we get involved in this now i'm gonna tell you again something you already know but i want you to know that i know that i don't know everything about reconciling work i, I don't and and the, the many kinds of brokenness that we have there's so many of them that i, I hardly even know where to begin I'm, i am still learning and yet here's what i want to do i think that if we look at the life of jesus we can get some very clear biblical guidelines that give us the direction and the next steps and the parameters in which we can step out in his name and make a positive difference in the world He's put us in. And today I just want to talk to you about where Jesus always began. I, I'm going to uh, look at the story that uh, Ruby read for us, Mark 7: uh, 24 to 30. Some of you may remember that I preached on this a couple of years ago. Anybody remember that? Two. Then I feel good about preaching about it again, here you see. It, it, but I could have picked dozens of stories. Because what Jesus does with this woman, He does all the time. And and, and the first step that Jesus always took when He would see brokenness in the world that was created through Him, was that He entered in. He he went, and and even when people say, you can't go into there, that's too broken, you shouldn't do it. He entered in to a respect-filled relationship and eventually brought His blessing the people that many said would never have any blessing, and the story that we look at today is just a classic case of this. That's why I wanted to come back to it. It was a woman that everybody in Jesus' own circle, his fellow people of Israel, they would have said, "You've got to stay away from her." I mean, if anybody even sees you with her, you will be undermined. You'll be discredited. You can't. So, but in spite of what they said, he engages right in a relationship with her. Because he doesn't do what most people do. He overturns the values and perspectives and ways of this world and shows us a different way. And so I, I think we're going to see that he shows us a different way today as well. So Mark chapter seven, uh, beginning with verse 24. So I've got to set the stage. When you read the Gospel of Mark and you open up the very first verse, you know who Jesus is. Uh, here's the title of the Gospel of Mark: "The beginning of the good news about Jesus and then he tells us who Jesus is Jesus is the Messiah that they would waited for a long time and he's the son of God so we know who he is when we read that first verse and then we read the next six chapters when we wonder whether any other human being will ever see it they seem so dense even though the first six chapters of Mark Jesus does over and over again what only God can do they should have seen it Uh, When there were natural disasters, like a big storm, Jesus spoke. And the seas were still. Uh, When there were demons and evil powers at work, Jesus spoke and the demons were dispelled. When people wondered whether their sins could ever be forgiven, Jesus pronounced sins forgiven. He even raised the dead. And even though he did all of these things, when you get to chapter 7, verses 1 through 23, the religious people... That would have looked much like many of us, they seemed to only notice this. The only thing they seemed to notice was, why don't His disciples wash their hands more often? You just look at that. How could that, how could that be? They, they seemed to think that the main thing that God, the God who made heaven and earth, the main thing that He cared about was whether His people defiled themselves by touching the wrong things. What kind of things? Like disease things demonize things dead things and especially damaged people like a Gentile so when you know that and you come to verse 24 why is it that right on the heels of that discussion Jesus launches right into this long, long trip into Gentile territory <laughs> think about that and he stays there a long time he's there for many many months now, when we read the particular story, the first story that happens in Gentile land, um, many Christians throughout the centuries have read this story and, and said, this is a strange story. Maybe you thought it was as Ruby read it for us today. But for his people, it wasn't just a strange story. Everything about it was wrong. Um, so what was wrong? What did Jesus do that was wrong in their perspective? Number one, he went to the wrong place. He went to the wrong place. Verse 24, Jesus left that place which was in Galilee among his own people. And he went to the vicinity of Tyre. You should look shocked. We need music. Duane, da-da-da-da. You know, something here that sets this up. Because Tyre, of all the Gentile lands, this was the worst of them. Um... These were the people who were the greatest adversaries of the people of Israel who had always warred against them. There's a historian named Josephus who wrote about them and said that they were, the who were notoriously Israel's bitterest enemies. And here for us, let's just note this. The way that these people engaged in religion was always immoral. It was wrong. It was outright paganism. I can almost hear us saying to our kids, stay away from them. And all of Jesus' people said, you stay away from them, the Tyrites. But Jesus did not stay away from them. He went there. Brothers and sisters, in a broken world in which we live, if you honestly believe that God reconciles you to himself and then gives you his Holy Spirit, one of the things we have to do is to be willing to go to places where the brokenness is in the name of Christ. Not to live as other people live, but to bring the hope of Jesus to other people and let them know that they are valuable and loved by God. In the eyes of his people, it was the wrong place for Jesus to be. He went there. He entered in. Two, it was the wrong kind of person for Jesus to be speaking with. Verses 25 and 26. Because I can almost imagine people thinking, well, he went there into Tyre. But he went into that house and he stayed away from people. He didn't touch them so he'd become defiled. But Mark gives us all this detail to let us know that that's not what happened. So look at verse 25 and 26 and keep it up there for a moment. What happened? A woman... Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit. It gets worse. Came and fell at his feet. This woman was a Gentile born in Syrian Phoenicia. Uh, From their perspective, everything was wrong about Jesus having any interaction with this woman. Why? Uh, One, she was a woman. And I... And, uh, okay, I know we have probably more women here than men, but you've got to hear this anyway. Uh, many of the rabbis said that any upstanding, respectable rabbi would have no public interaction with women at all. You shouldn't even acknowledge that they're human beings. So a woman, not just a woman. She was a Gentile woman. <laughs> not just a Gentile woman. A Gentile, Tyrite woman born there in Syrian Phoenicia And not only that, even among her own people, her home was a demonized home. Things were wrong there. Again, in his circle of people, if he had listened to what the rest of the world would have said to him, she would have been the very kind of person that he should have avoided. But he did not avoid her. He entered into dialogue with her. And brothers and sisters, you and I have to learn to do the same. If we're going to be engaged in the kind of reconciliation work that Jesus was. So, wrong kind of place, wrong kind of person. Then I want you to see in verse 27, it was the wrong kind of response that Jesus made to her. That made to her. I want you to imagine being a part of the scene. Um, okay. Potentially, it's a Jewish rabbi. They're in this home in Tyre. And a woman comes rushing in. What you should have expected, what she might have expected, was that he would say, "You dog, you," because that's what uh, Jewish people often cause called Gentiles. "You dog, you." What could possibly make you think that a person like me would have any interaction with a person like you? But you know, uh, Jesus wasn't like other religious leaders, was he? And I just imagine when I read this that she knew that already. If you look at Mark 3.8, you'll see that when Jesus was doing his miracles and teaching in Galilee, the people from Tyre would sneak across the border. They liked to listen to him and to see what he would do. I I just imagine, I I want you to imagine with me. um, I imagine she knew that he had gone over to the home of a tax collector. Mark chapter 2. And not just that, but had welcomed him into his innermost circle, his disciples. I imagine she knew that he had gone into Gentile land before and he had touched and healed and set free a Gentile demoniac man. Mark chapter 5 verses 1 to 20. I imagine she even knew that when a woman came to him who was defiled in the eyes of the people of the world because she had this hemorrhage, this interuterine hemorrhage that could not heal and when this woman touched him instead of him being repulsed he turned and he blessed her. And offered her shovel. So she comes in and she falls down at his feet and she says, My little daughter has a demon. Can you help? And Jesus responds in verse 27 this is a response, that's the wrong kind of response. This baffled people for so long. He says, First, let the children eat all they want, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. What does that have to do with anything? And mostly nobody likes this response. In his world, the conservatives would say, what is he doing talking with her and telling her a story? Uh, for those who are more progressives, what is he doing suggesting that she might be a dog? Nobody liked the answer to the story. So d- did you think that as Ruby was reading it? Well, you should have been. Um, let me, I, the last time I talked about this, I told you how I read it, so I'll just remind you. When Jesus talks about this, this story, if you can keep verse 27 up so you can look at it, the word in verse 27 he used for children, let the children eat all they want, was the term technon in Greek. And it has to do with biological children, those who are related to one another by blood. When the woman in verse 28 throws back the word children, she uses a broader term. She uses the word pideon, which means all the people who are in the house. Uh, the servants, the, the adopted, all, all the people who are there. So you see there's already this interplay of discussion going on. Then when Jesus says, first, uh, the bread of the kingdom, the blessing that the Messiah brings, the bread of the kingdom, first it has to go to the technon, to the, to the biological children, to, to the people of Israel, because Scripture said it would come first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. It would overflow, as Paul would cite in the book of Romans. So he's talking about that. And then third, and maybe the biggest thing I want you to notice, is that yes, many times Jewish leaders called Gentile people dogs, and they would use the word keon, which was for a scavenger dog that was there. But Jesus didn't use that word. He softens it. And and he uses it in his story, canarion, which is the word used for the household pet, kind of like my little Sheltie, Baxter, that you would have. So this is just a baffling response. Uh... This is the way I read it. I don't know if you agree, but this is the way I read it. When this woman falls in front of him, he says, Don't you know that the bread of God's kingdom blessing that I have brought must go first to the biological family members, the people of Israel, who have been persecuted so long and through whose lineage I have been born. Surely you don't think it would be right for me to take what must first come to my people and give it to the others, the pets in the household. Now, I don't know if you agree, but this would have been a shocking response for anybody. And perhaps the biggest point we have to think about is Jesus answered her request by telling her a parable, a story. And up until now, no man in Israel has ever understood a single story that Jesus told. So surely, this Gentile, Tyrite woman from a demonized home, she won't get it, right? Right? Four. The wrong kind of person receives the blessing of the king. I love this story. I think that's why I preach from it again. So she knew he he must be an unusual kind of rabbi, and yet there's a risk she's taking. She rushes into the house. She falls down and says, My little daughter is demonized. And then she hears him use language like um, uh, first and family language, technon, pideon. And that she doesn't call he doesn't call her a scavenger dog. So I'll tell you, she does what we all should do when you read the parables of Jesus. She locates herself in the story. She sees where she is. She gets it, and she makes herself a part of it. And essentially, she says, "But Jesus, there are always crumbs that fall from the table when the children eat, and when the pets eat the crumbs, they aren't stealing from the children." You've got to get this. This Gentile, tirade woman from a demonized home is the first person to understand one of Jesus' stories. Essentially, she says, even the crumbs of God's blessing, if it comes from you, that will be enough for us. And Jesus says such an answer. If you add in what uh, Matthew includes, that he said, Woman, you have great faith. And then that powerful statement, you may go, the demon has left your daughter. Hallelujah. Now there are so many things I want to preach about this, but I just want to make this point to you today. By entering into that relationship with this woman, across all of those things that divided, should have divided them, Jesus expanded the ministry of the kingdom beyond ways that anybody could have ever imagined. He expanded it in terms of geography went outside of Israel. He expanded it in terms of ethnicity outside of just the, uh, the Jewish people. He expanded it in terms of gender and even of religious heritage. If he hadn't gone across and entered into to that place of brokenness, there would have been no hope for this woman and her daughter. And brothers and sisters, there would be no hope for you and me. Because when you think about it, ethnically, culturally, almost all of us are on the other side of that divide. Most of us are not Jewish people who are now followers of Jesus. And yet Jesus did. And blessing came. And it's what Jesus always did. Children held at arm's length in their world, he welcomed. A Samaritan. Tax collectors. Lepers. Lepers. A prostitute, even a Roman military man. Jesus crossed over and entered into respect-filled relationships. And through that, brokenness was healed. Out of hostility, peace was made. Now, I had planned on talking about all sorts of different ways that I see brokenness in our world that I wonder how are we going to be God's reconcilers. Uh, And I will maybe over the next couple of weeks issues related to immigration or sexual practice, all these things that divide us. You know, God's placed us in this community, in this world now, to be his ambassadors of reconciliation. But this week, because of all that has been happening out of Ferguson, I I just want to remind you a little bit of your pastor's story. I think this whole matter of reconciliation for me started when I was a boy and it was about the kind of racial and ethnic issues Divisions that exist and have existed a long time in our nation. I've told you the story before it, but in this setting, let me tell you the story again. When I was 12, my family moved from one little town in West Virginia to another little town in West Virginia. Bluefield, West Virginia. It was beautiful, but it was racially segregated. Um, we had two high schools, a black and a white high school. We didn't need to, but we had to because of the divisions. Uh, our our uh, ethnicity was mostly just black, white here in Pasadena, it is global, isn't it? So, we had places where those who were uh, black folk and those who were white folk lived, and you, they were never crossed. Um, but I moved there, and uh, I was living in the white part of town. I don't think I'd ever had a single relationship with a person of color. And so, you know what happens if you never have a relationship with a person, you, you kind of hold people at arm's length, right? Whatever that division may be. And so, that's the way I was. So, one day I, I decided I wanted to walk downtown. I usually went with my big brother, but this day, I, for some reason, I went alone. So I, I've told you this before. I walked down Union Street where I lived. Uh, it was a white part of town. I took a right on Bland Street. kept walking up, and suddenly I went past Preston Street and into the more color-filled part of town. Suddenly it hit me, where, where am I here? And I was hoping none of the residents would come near me. In fact, I was terrorized inside. Every leaf that came, I thought I was jumpy, you know, and Edgy. Until I came around the corner and all that I was worried about happened. There were three men of color uh, standing there talking to one another. They looked at me and they must have seen the terror in my face. Which helps me to understand a little bit. If, if they had been large 18-year-old uh, men like Michael Brown, my response would have been terror. Terror. Overreaction. You see, so one of those men looked at me, he must have seen the terror in my face. And he said, Young fella, I have some advice for you. Uh, I think you should just sit down right now and have a nice cool bottle of pop with us. And I think you'll learn something if you do. You'll find out that we're just folks. See what I did? I sat down and had a nice cool bottle of pop. <laughs> And I began to learn. I I began to learn what sociologists call, I had no idea what you would call it, I began to learn about what sociologists would now call uh, the African-American experience in a rural Appalachian town. What I learned from these men that I came to see as my brothers was what it felt like for their children. When, When the government, our national government, said you had to integrate the public swimming pools, our city officials, instead of doing that, cemented it over. What it felt like for their children to know that they shut down the swimming pool just because of their skin color. I learned what it felt like for those men, these wonderful men, my brothers in Christ. I found out to see a boy like me coming around the corner and being terrorized simply because what I saw was the color of their skin and not the content of their character. I have a picture of old Mr. Bundy. I just love to. Love. It just makes me smile. It makes me smile to see him. Made me see that those men entered into relationship with me. If they had not, I don't know if I could even be pastor here in a community like God has put me in. You know, a few years later, um, I went to Chicago, and I I told you this too. The first week, the practical Christian, we, I think they deceived me. They uh, at at Moody Bible Institute, they, um, they were trying to recruit people to teach the Bible uh, in Chicago to children. So I volunteered. Uh, Then they told me where my assignment was. It was Cabrini Green. And some of you know about Cabrini Green. It was one of those housing, renowned housing projects in Chicago, Illinois. And this one was more difficult and it was different from all the other housing projects. The other housing projects were were built in uh, uh, areas that were economically deprived. This one was built in the wealthiest area of Chicago, right in the middle of the Gold Coast. The newspaper, Chicago Tribune, would call it an island of darkness in the midst of light. I found it to be something very, very different. There wasn't all that much light all around it in spite of all of the wealth and all of the money. When I went in there, I don't know if I did a bit of good. Think about it. An 18-year-old West Virginia boy with a hillbilly accent walking into a housing project in Chicago. What? That's insane. And yet as I went in, I just taught the Bible and, and I found myself being welcomed and even loved I met brothers and sisters there I met people who had high hopes that their children would have a better future I met older brothers and sisters who were praying that their younger siblings wouldn't get trapped in gangs and drugs like they felt that they were trapped in and as this stuff has emerged in our country out out of Ferguson there were some things that I've thought about all week I thought about the fact that I kept hearing stories when a mom's husband had been caught at an area near where there was a crime and had been taken and had been incarcerated. And and she felt hadn't been given a fair chance. I, I heard about children who had the same thing happen a lot and they kept saying this happens every day here in the city. It happens every day. They were credible witnesses to me. And the thing that I remembered this week is... This was 1969, uh, 45 years ago, and yet even back then they were saying, this has gone on for decades and decades. They were so frustrated by it. They were so angry about it. Uh, All that I can say is, whenever things happen and we just look at it and it just seems so clear cut, there is usually a long history. A long history. Uh, That that has led to a lot of anxiety, sometimes a lot of anger, and tons of frustration. So that if you and I are going to be people who enter into any kind of reconciliation at any level, you've got to mark this down. There are no fast fixes. Entering in means being willing to listen for a while. We, We don't do that in our day. We just talk at people. Jesus comes in and talks with people. And sometimes you've just got to hold on for a while because you don't agree with what the other person is saying and maybe at the end of the day you'll still be where you are. But I'm telling you, you'll hear another side of the story that makes you rethink it. And at the end of the day, I think you're also going to find that the only one who can bring you together and bring us together is a Jesus who was willing to enter in and give his life on behalf of not just them but for us. Amen. Um. So I I call upon us to be a group of people and a local church that enters in. To to look for where the brokenness in is and enters into relationships. We have a benefit living here in the San Gabriel Valley that I haven't always had in my life. And that is, you know, this is a United Nations community and a United Nations church. (laughs) We have the opportunity uh, to talk with people who come from all sorts of different kinds of brokenness, whether that's age or gender or ethnicity, and say, tell me, tell me what you're feeling. And to take time to listen. Now, hold on to your convictions. I'll talk about that more next week. Hold on to your convictions, but at the same time, gain those different perspectives. Why should we do that? Political correctness. No, no, no. Law is telling us to do it. No, no. Because you and I are people who are so grateful that the Lord Jesus entered into our lives. I mean, in this story of the woman, do you relate to Jesus or the Syrophoenician woman? I'll tell you, the woman. Jesus had to enter into her life. And in spite of our sins, He enters into our lives. And we should just be such grateful people that when you and I go out, whatever a person has, has been engaged in, it makes them to be broken. We look at them and say, you know, reconciliation is real. Because if I can know, if I can know God as my Father, there's hope for anybody in this world. <laughs> that should be our spirit, brothers and sisters. That should be our spirit. Oh, I have so much more to say, but I won't say it because I know we services come. I think the most powerful lesson I learned in Cabrini-Green um, came out of the fact that they welcomed me, of all people, into the projects. And, and, and uh, these children, their older brothers and sisters, would meet me outside and bring me in. And not only did they welcome me, they loved me. <laughs> uh, I got more hugs there. I got just about as many this morning after the 9 o'clock service. So, but really, more hugs there than I can ever remember getting. I've often asked myself why. And I, I feel, like I think, that intuitively, they were wanting the systems of this world to change, and they, they need to. They were hoping that the laws might change, and, and I know sometimes, whatever they are, they, they need to look at that. But they knew, deep down, that the only hope for their children really lasting help for their children was not going to come by political change or military or police might. It is going to come through the power of the gospel that is at work through the people of God empowered by the Holy Spirit dwelling within. And brothers and sisters, I think he plants a church like this in a neighborhood like this one to be his place of reconciliation. And we are his people. Because I am convinced that there is no God-forsaken place that goes beyond the reach of the love of God. There is no God-forsaken person who goes beyond the reach and embrace of our gracious God. There is no brokenness. In our world, beyond the power of God to be able to bring it back together. There is no hostility in this world beyond the grace of God to be willing to step in and to make peace. But how are people going to find out about it? And the word of God tells us, through us, we are his ambassadors of reconciliation. Second Corinthians chapter 5. Second Corinthians chapter 5. I'll leave you with this. Said it One of the great texts about reconciliation, verses 11 through 18, uh, the Apostle Paul wrote it. He, he had been, once been one of the perpetrators of brokenness. I mean, he wouldn't have anything to do with liberal Jewish people, with Samaritans, with filed Gentiles, never, until Jesus met him one day. And Paul says, I found out he had to die for me. I had no hope apart from him. Before I used to live for myself. Now... I have to live for the one who died for me, but I also realized, and he says it several times, he died not just for me, but for all. He died for all. And that changes everything. What does it change? Paul says. I'm going to put this verse up here for you to look at it. When you believe that, does anybody here believe this, that Jesus died for all? All right. Here is what Paul says is the result of this. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. We regard no one the way the world regards the world. Indeed, Paul says, we used to look at Jesus that way. We can do so no longer. How do we see people? And you know the great verse, I quote it so often. 517 of 2 Corinthians. If anyone, anyone is in Christ, that anyone is a new creation. All the old, that's gone. In Christ. The new has come. And all this is from God who has reconciled us to himself and now has entrusted to us the ministry and message of reconciliation. Bear it well. Bear it well. To his glory. Amen. Amen. We're going to be going to the cross. I mean, when we think of Jesus entering in at Christmas time, we think of the manger taking on human flesh. We can't stop there. He entered in by giving his life and his body on the cross, bearing our sins, though he himself was without sin. And he told us uh, so that we would never forget that when we gather, we're supposed to do what we're going to do now. And that's remembering what he did for our reconciliation. So if you're visiting with us today, this is the Lord's table. We have all desperately needed it. We are recipients of mercy and grace here. And if you love the Lord Jesus, if you're desiring to follow in obedience to the Lord Jesus, then this table is for you. Come and join us. So we'll ask you to come to the tables to my far right, to your left. Uh, if you have a gluten allergy, you can go there. We have that for you. Uh, if you can't, make it. To the tables, our stewards are going to come to bring it to you. As you come and receive those elements, uh, we want you to carry them back to your table and uh, to your chair, and then we'll receive them together. And the last thing, do you have your worship folder in front of you? And I know especially those who are younger often don't even get worship folders because you'll get your information online. Then you've got to still find a sheet of paper. Just rip one apart, or some, not the Bible, not, not a hymnal. Because here's what I want you to do. In response to this message, here's what I want you to do. I have two questions. Have a pen ready? Have your paper ready? Is there anybody you know that you think really needs to be reconciled to God? Somebody that you want to meet God through faith in Jesus? Write that person's name. Who's the first person who comes to your mind? Write that first. And then the second part of the response... Do you have a broken relationship? Is there someone that, with whom you know you need to be reconciled? In past Advents, we have put a cross up here, and we're going to do it again. What I want you to do is to take that sheet of paper and fold it. And then as you come to communion, thinking about Jesus entering into your life... I want you to leave it in the baskets at each one of our tables. You'll have it there. We're going to gather all those together. We're going to put them in our cross that we have. And we're going to be praying all through Advent season. We have seen God's reconciling power as we have prayed for his work to happen. And we're going to do that again this Advent. So as you come, I pray that you will bring those cards. Put them in the basket. And I pray that you will also be asking God what's first step you might take perhaps be his messenger and minister of reconciliation. He might do great things through you that you never could have imagined. So as we get ready for communion, our musicians are here. Let's pray. Father, your word tells us that all things eventually will be reconciled to you and it will happen in Christ through his death on the cross. So as we have thought about this word, now, Father, we come to remember, even as Jesus told us to do it, to remember the cost of our reconciliation. With deep, deep gratitude, Father, we come to the table. Do your work in our minds, in our hearts, in our attitudes. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.